Time for Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Hey, Michael, how you doing? I'm doing well, hanging in there as best I can. Absolutely. Keeping people out of trouble one at a time. Absolutely. So what is on the docket now? Because I would suspect that the courts uh, are not functioning as as efficiently as they otherwise would, given the COVID-19 restrictions that are in place. You're quite right. Uh, The courts have all uh, put in special protocols to try to address the uh, emergency. Uh, They are dealing with uh, emergent uh, cases. Applications can be made to a judge by in writing or by telephone. Uh, And so they are dealing with cases uh, which are uh, an emergency and must be dealt with. Uh, We're also starting to see some decisions released now that are uh, taking into account Uh, the emergency circumstances in the province and how they might uh, impact on actual uh, decisions. Um, We saw an example of that uh, this Monday when there was a decision released uh, dealing with uh, a driving prohibition. Uh, And this driving prohibition uh, was imposed on a lady by the name of Nadine uh, on the basis that she had an unsatisfactory driving record. And what that amounted to is that last year um, she wound up getting two tickets for holding an electronic device. She answered the telephone uh, in her car um, the first time when her boss was calling repeatedly, and then a second time (laughs) about a month later uh, to, uh, she said, hang up the phone and put it away. But she wound up getting these two tickets for uh, using an electronic device. Um, The result of that was that the superintendent of motor vehicles uh, issued her a driving prohibition for a period of four months. Now, that was a particular problem for uh, her, even in the best of times, um, as she's a single mother, uh, and she lives in a rural area, uh, a 20-minute drive from the nearest grocery store uh, or pharmacy. She drives her children to medical appointments uh, to get food, this sort of thing. Um, and so she she made a, uh, she wrote a letter to the motor vehicle branch asking them not to prohibit her, setting out her personal circumstances, the hardship, and the impact uh, and the circumstances of the ticket. The superintendent decided to uh, uphold the driving prohibition, and that's how the matter wound up in court. Now, uh, the topical and interesting part of this is that. Uh, the superintendent of motor vehicles argued in court that they were not required uh, to take into account uh, and consider the hardship uh, that this mother would face if she was not permitted to uh, drive for a period of four months. Mm -hmm. And they also argued uh, that there was no obligation to take into account the circumstances surrounding the tickets uh, because the legislation that allows for driving prohibitions talks about Uh, A prohibition can be put in place if the superintendent of motor vehicles considers somebody's driving record to be unsatisfactory. And so they argue, look, we don't need to even think about the hardship for her or her children, and we are not required to consider uh, the circumstances surrounding the tickets. We only have to look at her uh, driving record. And the judge essentially agreed with those points, looking at the Motor Vehicle Act, as a judge doesn't make the law, they're just... Uh, applying it and interpreting it. And they said that's correct. They're not required to consider either of those things. But what the judge did um, is um, made reference to the fact that this woman was a single mother, lives 20 minutes away from the nearest grocery store or pharmacy, uh, and then made reference to the current public health emergency 
and the need for individuals to maintain physical distancing. And if you remove this mother's ability to drive at this point, that's going to impact, the judge said, potentially on her ability to get groceries for herself and her children yes. and could potentially put herself, her family, and others in her community at risk. And in light of that, uh, the judge, even though the judge found that as a matter of law, the superintendent is not required to even think about any of those things, um, the judge urged the superintendent to consider suspending or waiting to impose the four-month uh, driving prohibition so that the effect wouldn't be to deprive the mother of her ability to safely get food and medicine for her, uh, herself and her children. And the judge has given the superintendent uh, until April the 20th uh, to respond to that suggestion. Uh, but I do think the case uh, raises an interesting issue in the current circumstance. This, this is the judge sort of urging the superintendent, even though they're not obliged to, that they should consider at least waiting. One thing that I think might need to be considered here is whether there should be um, some consideration given in the current circumstance to those sort of factors when deciding whether it's appropriate to prohibit somebody from uh, being able to drive at the moment. And there would certainly be cases where somebody is so dangerous that you have to uh, immediately stop them from uh, driving lest they kill somebody. But many uh, circumstances are much uh, less uh, urgent, perhaps, than that. And so I would suggest that there should be some uh, consideration given to those sorts of personal uh, circumstances so that we're not, um, in the bigger scheme of things, causing unnecessary risk and hardship uh, in the uh, current uh, really unusual circumstances. Um, what currently happens is that there's a, uh, a guide uh, that is put out for the adjudicators that are charged with deciding whether somebody's driving record is in unsatisfactory. Uh-huh. And there are a few elements of that I think people should know about lest they wind up in the same position that um, this mother did. Um, one of the things which people should be aware of, and this was a change made in 2016, is that if an individual gets, uh, in, even an experienced driver with no other tickets, which this woman was, um, if somebody receives any two of the following things, ticket for excessive speeding, driving without due care and attention, uh, using an electronic device while driving, or emailing or texting, if you do any of those two things in a one-year period, you virtually will, by operation of this policy, be prohibited for a period of between three and twelve months. Wow! So the uh, caution people should be then people should be aware of um, is that um, you can very quickly uh, wind up in a circumstance where you're not uh, allowed to drive if you wind up with uh, two tickets of those kinds. Uh, and in the current circumstance, that could be a uh, uh, life-altering uh, implication. So people just need to be so careful. Uh, well, at the same time, I would hope that the uh, superintendent of motor vehicles does start taking into consideration uh, the implication of those kind of driving prohibitions. Now, the justice in this case invited the parties in paragraph 75 to consider an agreement to suspend the commencement of the driving prohibition at this time. Judge writes, if the parties cannot agree to the suspension, I request counsel provide written submissions. Is that an indication that this matter may yet be decided beyond simply an invitation? That's possible. Um, and it's an interesting thing, of course, because when you look at the, and this case spent a whole lot of time analyzing 
you know, the standard of review and yes. when a judge is permitted to uh, interfere with a decision. And broadly, the point that the judge makes when you read the whole judgment is that even though the Motor Vehicle Act allows for an appeal to a judge about whether somebody should be prohibited, when you do that, it's not the judge's job to simply say, what do I think should happen, right? The judge doesn't just get to make their own decision. What they're doing is they're looking at the decision uh, which was made by the superintendent of motor vehicles, and they're charged with determining whether it was uh, something which had a uh, palpable and overriding error apparent. So the judge very much uh, found that uh, she was obliged to uh, exercise uh, restraint and not interfere with this decision because of that, um, the way an appeal, the appeal of this kind of a driving prohibition works. But she's urging the superintendent uh, to uh, at least consider uh, waiting here. How the judge addresses that if the superintendent says, uh, no, we wish to proceed, uh, will be interesting because the superintendent's position set out in the judgment was this. It said, the superintendent submits that it was not required to consider the appellant's hardship in exercising its discretion. The superintendent's focus is not on the privilege of the licensee, but the protection of the road-using public. And so the superintendent's position in this case was not required to consider uh, hardship at all. Um, and so it will be interesting to see uh, how they respond to the judge's urging uh, and what the judge does if they don't get the hint uh, and uh, not try to, at the moment at least, uh, prohibit the single mother from being able to drive uh, to get groceries and medicine. Let's take a quick break. Legally speaking, we'll continue. Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers as we continue to look at the interesting legal implications of recent judgments in the news. Up next, stay with us. Legally Speaking continues here on CFAX 1070 from Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. We're going to be getting to what Quebec is doing in terms of checkpoints to limit travel to and from Ontario in just a few moments. Meanwhile, Premier Doug Ford is announcing as we speak, Michael, that Ontario will be releasing projection data tomorrow that he is warning the public is stark, but he has decided is necessary to justify the rather extreme measures being taken in central Canada at this point. I think we have another story we want to get to before that, though, do we not? Uh, we do, and it's a follow-up on a, a notorious murder case from a number of years ago in Victoria, um, and it's the case involving the uh, three high school students who back, I think it was 1991, uh, one of them promised the other two um, a portion of a $4 million inheritance uh, to go and kill the, the uh, contractor's mother and grandmother so that he could inherit money. Um, all three were convicted uh, and have been um, serving life sentences. The two uh, individuals who were 17 at the time uh, who were convicted of committing the actual murder, um, because they were youth at the time, even though they were sentenced as adults, uh, were eligible to ask for parole after spending 10 years in custody. One of those individuals, Mr. Muir, uh, applied uh, for parole back in 2003, and he's been on full parole for the last 17 years with no apparent difficulty uh, at all. Uh, one of the other individuals, his last name was Muir, uh, sorry, his last name was Lord, Derek Lord, uh, was eligible to apply for parole at the same time, uh, but he has maintained his innocence, claiming that he was wrongly convicted. 
And as a result of that, he hasn't been released on parole uh, for the last 17 years. Um, he was uh, just granted uh, the uh, day parole, uh, having now spent, uh, I think it's, uh, what does that amount to, about 30 years or so in custody. Um, and so uh, it's an example of um, the effect it has when somebody maintains um, their innocence in terms of their ability to get parole. And the language used in the assessment of Mr. Lord was, until such time as Mr. Lord takes accountability for his crime and is willing to discuss the details of his offense, any assessment of risk would be incomplete and lack confidence. And on that analysis, because he has maintained that he was wrongly uh, convicted, um, he has uh, spent an additional 17 years uh, in custody, uh, in contrast to the other person who was released back in 2003. Um, the, uh, the individual who was an adult at the time, just barely, uh, who hired his classmates to commit the murder, um, he remains in custody. He was eligible to apply for parole after having served 25 years. Uh, he applied for day passes a number of years ago and was denied. Um, so he remains in custody. Interestingly, that person uh, managed to escape briefly from uh, custody uh, back in 1995 uh, and was uh, recaptured. And so uh, the uh, decision, the parole decision, I think is both of local interest and also uh, points out um, how that parole system works. And uh, it's important for people to know that when somebody receives a life sentence and there's some mention of parole ineligibility, that does not mean uh, that you get out after that period of time. Uh, Mr. Lord, of course, he's now 47 years of age. He was 17 at the time of the um, offense. Um, and so he uh, has uh, been in custody for uh, a very extended period of time, of course, for a very serious crime. Um, and uh, it's an interesting one when you've got somebody who uh, insists that they didn't do it, uh, and when they would know full well that their insistence on innocence is going to mean that they are likely to spend, in this case, an additional 17 years in custody, in contrast with the person who, uh, the other individual who uh, admitted having done it and has been out on full parole since 2003. Yeah. So there we are. All right. We'll move on to the next story, and I know Doug Ford's currently giving a press conference as we speak, Michael. I see Glenn McGregor with CTV News reporting. Premier Ford says officials will be revealing Ontario projections tomorrow for COVID-19 in a briefing. Quote, will be a very, uh, will be, excuse me, a real wake-up call. And indeed, I just retweeted that for anybody following along on social media. Ontario's numbers have been tracking, Michael, a lot higher than they should be if we want to aim for an ideal scenario. British Columbia's numbers much more favorable for the moment. Everyone should be urged not to panic when they see those numbers tomorrow. Again, it's one possible future that may be avoided with a change in collective action exhibited by the public subsequent to that warning. Meanwhile, the Quebec government has set up checkpoints in Ottawa limiting the ability of people to come into Quebec from Ontario. Unlikely a coincidence. How does the law work with one province trying to essentially block travel from another province? Yeah, this is, I think, uh, a troubling uh, approach to it. Uh, what's been reported is that uh, Quebec has deployed police to the, I think it's five bridges that connect Ottawa and Gatineau, uh, and police and other entrances uh, uh, to uh, Quebec, and they are stopping 
uh, people trying to drive from Ottawa uh, into, or from Ontario, into Quebec. Uh, and they are asking them why they're coming there, and they're permitting some people uh, to continue, uh, and uh, other people they are refusing uh, to permit into the province of Quebec. Um, there was uh, some suggestion they wanted to stop people, for example, driving to their uh, remote cabin <laughs> or cabins yes. in Quebec, but they're allowing people in for medical appointments or they describe as humanitarian reasons. Now, the reason the interprovincial, uh, and I should say in the reverse, Ontario is not doing anything. They're not deploying police on the Ontario side of the bridge. Um, and the reason that sort of a provincial uh, blockade or checkpoint uh, may not be lawful is that there are some constitutional uh, provisions that would need to be considered, in particular Section 6 of the Charter. That section provides, and this is other relevance in the current emergency, that section provides, first of all, that every citizen of Canada has the right to enter, remain, and, and leave Canada. Um, and so uh, that's an important thing to bear in mind in the current uh, context of restricting uh, travel. And I must say, that leaving Canada is also, even in ordinary times, an important one. Some countries, of course, when you want to leave, uh, you have to show up and ask kind permission of the uh, state to be able to get out of the country. Precisely. The Berlin Wall. Yeah. yeah, the Berlin Wall wasn't to keep people out. It was to hold people in. Yes. So it's important we have a constitutional right to leave and to come back. Uh, but there are other protections there. So the uh, Section 6, Sub 2 says that every citizen of Canada and every person who has the status of a permanent resident of Canada has the right to move to and take up residence in any province and to pursue the gaining of livelihood in any province. Now, all the constitutional rights in Canada, or not all, this constitutional right in Canada, I should say, is subject to um, Section 1, uh, which provides for reasonable limits to be imposed on charter rights, like this uh, right to take up residence in another province. However, um, the Supreme Court of Canada, uh, back in uh, 1986, in a case called Oaks, set out how those sort of limits are to be assessed. And importantly, one of the first things to look at is whether a measure would be fair and not arbitrary, and whether it is carefully designed to achieve the objective in question um, and is rationally connected to that objective, and then there's an obligation that any restriction on a constitutional right impair the charter right as little as possible. And when you consider, uh, even for a few moments, um, the idea of setting up a checkpoint um, to try to stop people uh, from uh, Ontario coming into Quebec, I don't think that's getting very far uh, in terms of whether it is not arbitrary, whether it's fair, or whether it's carefully designed to achieve a, uh, an objective. Um, there's naturally, in, in times of trouble and worry, uh, an inclination to think that all risk is external, yes. right? Um, you know, we must stop people from coming here. The others are the problem, right? And you saw that with, uh, you know, Donald Trump uh, originally referring to this, or referring to this pretty recently as the Chinese virus. Mm. Um, you know, everyone wants to view uh, problems and risks as being external, but... This is clearly not uh, an issue which is, you know, from Ontario coming into Quebec. There are serious problems in both locations there now. And so I think we need to uh, uh, restrain ourselves uh, from uh, doing things like trying to set up interprovincial checkpoints to stop the movement of 
uh, people across borders. And while there may well be uh, important and legitimate um, things to be done to ensure people are uh, complying with health orders and uh, not doing unnecessary risky things that would put uh, the public in jeopardy, um, connecting those to stopping people from other you know, provinces um, crossing a provincial boundary, to my mind, uh, is not the sort of careful, uh, fair, uh, and rational uh, approach to these things. If you want to have checks to make sure that people are uh, complying with uh, medical orders, you know, fine, that may be a thing to be done, uh, but uh, we shouldn't uh, use this uh, as an excuse to um, put uh, in place provisions that are at odds with some of our fundamental Canadian values. One of those, as enshrined in the Constitution, is that people are free to cross provincial uh, borders, and we ought not to be uh, putting in place uh, provisions that would run counter to those um, fundamental uh, values in our country. Michael Mulligan, we appreciate your knowledge and your insight helping us better understand the legal system under which all of us have obligations that we must at all times fulfill. Thank you, as always. Stay safe, physically distance, and we look forward to our next segment. Thank you very much. Talk to you then. Take care. Have a great day. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers during the second half of our second hour, ordinarily in studio, lately physically distancing over the phone as we all do our part every Thursday here on CFAX 1070.